morning. I've got some good news. A couple months ago, we were talking about our dreams for this church and sharing it as leaders. We mentioned in this whole matter of stewardship, we said that our, our dream is that every month of every year that our giving would exceed our budget, not just our expenses, but our budget. And we're two for two. So we, we, we did it in June. We did it again in July. And we're knocking at the door to, um, to meet our commitment. And it's like this huge commitment that we had last year, 17% increase. Our giving's up about a 15% at this point with a little under 140000 to go. It is right there in front of us. So thank you for allowing God to use you to um, move forward the ministries of this church, that we might be a church that's about changing lives to change the world. And as you think about your vacation time this coming month, um, thanks for remembering Door Creek even when you're away. Well, I did something that I've put off for a while. I, um, I picked up the CD of Pastor Brad's funeral. I've had it. Chris Dolson was here last week, and I was reminded again I need to listen, and I saw it on my desk. So I pulled it out and listened to it. The title of that message was, It Makes No Sense. And that was a phrase that was repeated time and time again during Chris's message. And if you were here some two and a half years ago, and you heard those words, I'm sure there's a quick echo in your own heart. Yeah, it doesn't. It makes no sense no sense that God would take our beloved pastor home in the prime of his life with a young family just when we needed him makes no sense I think that phrase is something was repeated in South Korea in the last couple weeks as parents of these, uh, these beautiful students who went over as missionaries to Afghanistan to share the love of Christ. And two of the leaders have been brutally murdered and the rest are being held hostage by the Taliban in Afghanistan. And they say, how, how can this be? They're following God's leading to go speak of his son and now look what's happened. It, it makes no sense. Jeannie Archer and I were just talking over coffee and she told me about her son who was 30 seconds in front of the bridge before it collapsed. And there's a lot of people in Minnesota saying, it makes no sense. You're sitting around a table and mom's not there. Bodies haven't been found. How can a bridge fall out of the sky, so to speak, and plunge into the Mississippi? makes no sense. In the heels of this man's niece who died and his close friend's daughter who died, both young, he too said it makes no sense. And so this one who'd been trained at Bible school, this one who had gone overseas for a summer and doing missions work, this one who had been teaching in the church for years, tells his wife, I, I, I'm not going to teach anymore. She says, how come? He says, you know, I, I don't even know what I believe. I don't know what I believe. I, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian. 
And that's how it is at times. Living in this twisted, fallen world, there are many times where we say, it makes no sense. In the midst of that, the enemy would love to shoot a fiery arrow of dart, of doubt, right at the heart. Maybe that's where you are. You've got a lot of questions. You've got a boatload of doubts. You're not even sure God exists anymore. You're not sure the Bible's true. You're not sure where you stand with God, where you will stand with Him. What do you say to yourself? What do you say to someone close to you who's wrestling with this whole matter of their faith? God's Word comes this morning, and God tells us, well, you got to pick up the helmet of salvation. It's our hope, the hope of God in the midst of doubts that could bring great despair and have us fearful even over death itself. So I invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians. And as you're turning there, I want to just rehearse again where we've been in the book. Where we've been is that we're at the end, Right? And he's given the finally. And um, it's taken me a lot longer for us to preach through the finally section than it actually took him to say it. You know, it's just a few verses. And he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And he says, the way you're going to be strong is you've got to put on the full armor of God. So put it all on. That's your strength and where you're going to find strength so that you can stand. Because that's the goal, that you could stand against the devil's schemes, that you could stand in that day of evil, that you could stand firm the ground that Christ has won for us on the cross. Stand firm. And then we remember how he's been dispensing the armor. He says, take up the belt of truth. Buckle it on, that belt of truth. What is it? It's the word of God that protects us from Satan's lies. And we put it on by faith as we believe it and read it and live it out. In obedience, and we stand firm. He uh, then says, buckle on that breastplate of righteousness, that bulletproof Kevlar vest, right? The righteousness of Christ is what we're putting on, this covering against his accusations and against the guilt that would weigh us down and just take us right out of the game, right out of the fight. He says, put on the breastplate of righteousness by faith, trusting in Christ's righteous life being enough for us. We stand firm. Then he said, you get your boots on. Buckle, lace up those boots. Have your feet fitted with the readiness, the preparation that comes from this gospel of peace. What are we putting on? What are we standing firm in? The gospel of peace. What's it defending against? It's defending against this slow drift away from the unity of the gospel, from the truth of the gospel. And we put it on by believing it. We stand firm. He says, also take up the shield of faith. What is it? Our faith in a good God, in his good provisions of his son, of his word, his commands, and his promises. And we're protected from those fiery arrows that would come at us. The temptations, the doubts, the persecutions, the suffering, the false teaching, the pride, all of that protected by the shield of faith. Standing firm. And today, he says, put on this helmet of salvation. So look at verse 13. If you haven't got a Bible, there, there is one in the rack in front of you. I invite you to turn to page 830. We'll read at 
verse 13 of chapter 6. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, and with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, when we think about the helmet, he calls it the helmet of salvation. He's thinking about this Roman soldier who wore a helmet. I am sure it wasn't camouflaged like Lieutenant Colonel Robert Goodsells. Now, I don't know if you knew this, but Bob keeps this on his shelf down with his books down in his office. And I grabbed it this week thinking, I'd like to use that. I had no idea how heavy this thing is. I mean, if I hit you over the head, I'm pretty sure I could knock you out. This thing is solid. He said it's Kevlar, it's bulletproof. And though it's not like an exact replica of that Roman one, it served the same purpose. As you put that Hummer and buckle it up, you were protected What are you protected from? Well, the flaming arrows. You're protected from those swords, from the spears, and anything and everything that could take you out of the fight. Very, very important to wear your helmet. Well, I know that firsthand. It's important to wear a helmet. I'll tell you why I know that. Because on those good days, those days I told you when I can get my... uh, my orange chaps on and my Husqvarna helmet on and fire up my Husqvarna chainsaw and go out and start cutting down trees on the land. It's always a good day. And I've been out there doing it when all of a sudden a limb or even a big part of the tree falls straight on my head. You go, how does that happen? I don't know how that happens. It's just happened. It's happened a couple of times. I was really glad I had my helmet on. Boy, I wish I'd had my helmet on when I was just six years of age. I was at my aunt's house in Switzerland. We were eating Sunday dinner, and I was sitting in a three-legged stool, and you shouldn't do this even in a four-legged stool, but I was tipping back when all of a sudden it went, just like that, and my head hit the corner of the marble ledge behind me, and my white Sunday shirt went red in seconds. Boy, I wish I'd had my helmet on that day. I wish I had my helmet on in sixth grade when Rick Strzok grabbed me after I gave him a good, powerful hip check into the lockers. When he grabbed me by the scruff of my neck, literally just threw me into the door jam, and my head was creased by the door jam, and I was bleeding all over needing stitches. Boy, I wish I'd had a helmet on. 1981. Lori and I were just married. Don't go there. (laughs) It was a Friday night. We're at this concert, we're poor, so we said the only way we can get to the concert is volunteering to usher, so we're ushering, sitting in the front row, and the concert's going long, normally not a problem, except I was working the late shift at UPS over the Christmas rush to make some extra money, so I was late. The concert's over, I ran out the door with Kevin Earhart, some of you know Kevin, because he was the youth pastor at Buckeye, right? Kevin and I, we run out to our cars. It's, it's a December night, so the windows are frosted up, right? But I'm in a hurry. I'm late. I do not have time to scrape the windows. So I'm just going to be practical about it. I got the wipers going. I got the fluid going. I got the defrost on full. And I'm looking through a pee hole about this big. 
and I'm driving the Braille method going, I know this road. I've driven down it a lot of times. And pretty soon here, there's a guard shack. And I'm going to have to veer over just a little. I think it's coming up. And the next thing, bam. Man, I wish I'd had my helmet on. Because I put my head through that windshield when I hit the parked car. Going, to this day, I'm still sure that parked car moved. Where did that thing come from? They've never parked there before, but because of that concert, they were there. And I wished I'd had a helmet on when I pushed my head through that windshield. God's saying to us, don't leave home without your helmet as you go out in the fight. You need a helmet. The helmet of salvation. What is that helmet of salvation? Well, Paul uses that metaphor two times in the New Testament. The other is in 1 Thessalonians 5.8. Look what it says. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, but since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Now that, that's helpful. We understand then what it is exactly that we're being protected from and what it is we're receiving. We're receiving the hope that is ours through salvation in the midst of the doubts that we might face that come at us in the midst of a world that sometimes doesn't make sense and from an enemy that would allow us to doubt the very certainty of our salvation. So how does it work? Well, it works like this. It works like this. Our salvation gives us hope because it points to two things. Primarily to God. What he's done and what he's promised. And when we understand our salvation is all about him, what he's done, and all about what he's promised, then all of a sudden we have confidence. Because when it's not in God and in us, it's shaky ground. So we go back to the beginnings of Ephesians. And we remember in chapter 1, verse 4, what has God done? Well, he chose us before the foundation of the world. What has he done in verse 5? Well, he adopted us to be his kids. What did he do in verse 7? Well, he's redeemed us. He's released us. He's rescued us. He's freed us. He's forgiven us. How? Through his son's sacrifice on the cross. What has he done? Chapter 2, verse 4. He, he took that which was dead. We were spiritually dead, and he's made us alive. You know, dead things can't do things for themselves. He did for us what we couldn't do. He made us alive. He gave us spiritual life. And he did it by his grace, through faith, not through our good works. And even our faith, he says, in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, is a gift from God. It's all about God and what he's done, and it's all about God and what he promises. And what he promises in Philippians 1, 6 is that the work that he's begun is a work that he's going to complete. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1, 6. Here's how he puts it in, in, in Ephesians. Remember what he said? He said, having believed the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, you have been marked with a seal the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the possession of those who are God's people. What is he saying there? He's saying when God 
mercifully made you alive. He gave you a deposit of his own spirit, the spirit of Christ, to take up residence in your life. And at the point he came into residence in your life, it was a down payment. What's a down payment? It's the first of more to come. The down payment, this seal that marked us off as belonging to him, this seal that protected, protected us, chapter 4, verse 30, until this day of redemption was the promise that what he's begun in us is what he's going to complete. And as the scriptures talk about it, we realize that his saving has more to do than just save from the penalty of sin, death, not only just save from the power of sin so that now we actually can resist it, but saved one day, praise God, from the presence of sin in my life and in the world. And when God talks about it in his word, like in Revelation 21 and 22, he talks about where all things have become new. We're no longer under the curse. There's no more death and there's no more tears and there's no more dying. There's no more sickness and sadness. It's all new. John writes about it in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, and he says, in that day we will see him. See, right now we see with eyes of faith. One day we will see him with eyes of sight. And when we see him, John says, we will be like him in his perfect humanity, like Jesus Christ. And so what gives us hope is when we think about our salvation and go, look, this is all God's doing. It started before I ever even existed. It's met me and it's been his gracious outpouring. It's been a gift that he's given to me and he's promised to complete what he started. And that, as the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 619, is an anchor to our souls, this hope, leaving us firm and secure. It's the hope, the hope of the gospel that speaks of our salvation. Now, I've asked a lot of people this question. If you were to die tonight in a car accident, let's say, would you know for sure that you're going to heaven? Well, there's a lot of people say, to me, well, you can't know that. Nobody can know that. I mean, I hope I'm going, but there's no way I'm sure, absolutely sure. Well, listen to this from, John, from 1 John chapter 5. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Friends, you can know that today. You can know that your salvation is secure in the midst of even your doubts today? How can you know it? Well, let me give you three questions that I think will help you understand how it is that we can have that kind of assurance and why it is maybe that we've got our our confidence in the wrong things and, and maybe ought to reconsider what is the basis for our confidence of spending eternity with God in heaven. The first question is this. Am I presently trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation? Not have I trusted, not did I once pray a prayer, not did your were your parents Christians, not did you make a decision for Christ, did you raise a hand for Christ or walk forward for Christ? Not how much money you've given or how much you're serving now, but are you currently trusting in Christ, keyword alone? For your salvation. Well, how do you know? How do you know? Well, take a crack at this question. You meet God at the entrance of heaven and he says, well, why should I let you in? What's your answer? Your answer 
gives you a huge indication of who or what you're trusting in. If you say, as I've often heard, I've tried to be a pretty good person, who are you trusting in? If you say, I, I've, I've kept the Ten Commandments, who are you trusting in? If you said, you know, I, I try to always do the right things and be kind. You know, the golden rule, do unto others as they would, as you would have them do unto you. And yeah, I've tried to do that. Who are you trusting? And see, all those answers are, are going back to, I'm trusting in me. And it's no wonder that when people answer that way, there's a correlation between that answer and someone saying, I'm not sure. In fact, I don't even know if you can be sure. Because we're always left with that nagging question, aren't we? I wonder if it's good enough. I mean, I'm, I'm really hoping God's like into the curve because I think if it's the curve, I'm in. I'm somewhere in there. I mean, I know some guys are a lot worse. I think I could get in under the curve, the old bell curve. And Jesus says, we are to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. I mean, have you ever thought about it? If it's just a matter about being somewhat good, why in the world then would Jesus have to die? Why in the world would he have to die? It's just a matter of being somewhat good. So as you answer that question, you have a huge indication on what am I trusting in? Is it in Christ alone or is it in what I'm doing? If you know that today you're continuing on in faith, you have reason to be confident in your salvation. But let me add a nuance to that, the second question that ties right into it. If we are people of faith, followers of Christ, well, then it'll show up in the life we live. It'll show up. There'll there'll, there'll be evidence of our faith. There'll be fruit of our faith. So when the Bible talks about fruit, evidence, it talks about the character of Christ, spirit, Galatians 5.22, emanating from our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, the fruit of the spirit. Not only does it talk about the fruit of the spirit, but 2 Peter 1, 5 through 11 talks about the fruit of good works as does Ephesians 2.10. That, that it shows up and that we aren't saved by good works, but once we are saved and come into this relationship with God, one of the ways we know we are is we have a life of good works. Hebrews 13 talks about the fruit of lips, a sacrifice of praise, 13.15. Philippians 1.22 talks about a fruitful labor where even as Paul was saying, if I'm going to keep living, it's going to be for your benefit and I'm going to have an influence in your life. And that shows up. Is there evidence? Is there fruit of your faith? The final question is this. Is there a hunger for the word of God that leads to a doing of God's word by his grace? A growing love for God and for others. Take the helmet means this. It's something that's in God's hand that he's giving to you this morning. Receive it by faith and put it on. Put it on. Maybe you've never done that. God says in his word this very thing. God is ready to help you right now. Today is the day of salvation. Put it on. And those of you who are dealing with great doubts, go back to your salvation and rehearse again what it is that God has done for us. It's all his doing. 
Find your sure, secure anchor and hope in his salvation. And then he takes us to the sword, doesn't he? He calls it the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Now, we've got some swords up here. I know some of the kids have been seeing the swords. We've got a Civil War sword here. We've got a, um, a buccaneer's sword, a pirate's sword. This, this is one that, you know, I'm sure Jack Sparrow. See, is this thing going to keep sliding on me? All right, there we go. We've got Jack Sparrow's sword right here. Yeah, this is a pretty good-looking sword here. Here's one from Lord of the Rings. These are all from Mike Grinnell who collects swords. This is the female elf. Remember in, in um, book one here how she rescues the lad and carries him across the river, Erwan? And this is her sword with all kinds of fancy writing on it, pretty sharp. Then you've got the uh, Three Musketeers sword, Dardine, right? You've got his sword over here. And then we've got the uh, Japanese sword. And then again from the Lord of the Rings, we've got the Orc sword. Yeah, you remember that one. Those slimy creatures from the abyss, right, with their orc swords. And then here we have the Roman sword. This is the Roman sword. This is the one that the writer of Hebrews is talking about when he says the word of God is living and active and sharper than a what? Double-edged. Double-edged sword. And, And God is saying in his word that his word is like this sword. It's the only piece in the six pieces of armor that is both defensive and offensive. Okay? It's the only one like it. He calls it the sword of the Spirit. Now, why is it called the sword of the Spirit? Well, look up on the screen and, and read with me Second Peter. Look what Peter says about God's word in relationship to the Spirit. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the prophet didn't wake up one morning and say, man, I feel great. I think I'm going to write the Bible today. It didn't work like that. God, through his spirit, even through the personality of that writer, made sure that he wrote down exactly what God wanted written down for his people then, and for his people today. It was God's doing. That's why it's the sword of the Spirit, because it's the Spirit who has given us the word through these human authors, and that's why we pray to him for illumination. John 14 tells us about the Spirit's role in in guiding us into truth. And so the Spirit's never working apart from the word. Don't ever say, the Spirit's leading me to do this, and it has nothing to do with the teaching of God's word. In fact, it's contrary to it. God's Spirit never works in the opposite direction of His Word. Word and Spirit working together. And so we look at this piece of armor, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. It's our Bible. And what it does is it defends and it destroys and gains us victory, allowing us to stand in the midst of the battle. So how does it work? How does it work? Well, the psalmist says it works like this. He says this in Psalm 119, verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart for this reason, that I might not sin against you, that I won't give in a temptation, that one of those fiery arrows won't take me out. I have stored the word so that the word is an extension of my being just as a sword would be an extension of a warrior's arm. It's just there. So the point of the drill isn't, hey, 
buy lots of Bibles. Like, because you got to have a lot of them and have them all over the place. So at any moment, you can grab your sword. No, the point is, have that sword, the truth of God's word, hidden in your heart, stored in your heart, so that no matter where you are, and the wildest of things that jump into your mind in terms of temptation, you are armed and ready to defend and destroy his lies, his attacks, his accusations, whatever it is. That's what Jesus did. After 40 days of fasting and praying in the wilderness before his public ministry started, the scripture tells us in Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11, that Satan came and he tempted him. He said, hey, Jesus, I bet you're hungry. 40 days, no food. How about these rocks? Show me your magic. Turn them into bread. What did Jesus do? He grabbed the sword, pulled it out of the scabbard. He says, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God that proceeds from the mouth of God. It is written. He tempts him again to jump off the pinnacle of the temple. It is written. You shall not test the Lord your God. He tempts him again. Bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. Out comes the sword one more time. It is written. You shall worship the Lord and serve him only. That's what Jesus did. And that's what we're to do as we take hold and allow this word to have a hold on us so that we are ready to go and defend against his lies, his schemes. So let me give you some examples here. Satan's scheme says this, how can God be good and loving when life's hard? God's sword flashes and says, Psalm 119, you are good and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. Satan's scheme says God's word isn't good or true. God's word flashes and says, as for God, his way is perfect. 2 Samuel 22, the word of the Lord is flawless. How could God love you? The word responds, I've loved you with an everlasting love. How can you think you're going to heaven? The word responds, he who believes has eternal life. Tempted to have an affair? Maybe that's exactly where you are right now. You're on the slippery slope. There's an emotional thing going on and you're playing it out in your mind or maybe you've played it out. The word comes to us from Proverbs 5. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. We knock that temptation right out of the air. Tempted to retaliate, to take vengeance on those who have deeply wounded you and wronged you. The sword flashes again. Romans 12, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, he will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Tempted to gossip. The word flashes, Ephesians 4, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Tempted to love money and become a lover of money. The word flashes, Ecclesiastes 5, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. Afraid to die. 
God's word flashes, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And so, as we finish out the six pieces of the armor, we note that we began with the belt of truth and we end with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. God's Word gives us all of His armor. God's Word can't be separated from the Spirit and the Spirit can't be separated from Christ. It's all about Christ. His truth is about His righteousness. His truth tells us about this gospel of peace. His truth gives us the shield of faith. His truth gives us that protective covering over our heads, our salvation. His truth is found in the word of God, the sword of the Spirit. And when we put it all on, we're not like David, tripping along in Saul's heavy armor going, man, he's a big giant and this is great stuff, king, but I don't think I can do it. I don't think I'll be able to do anything in this heavy armor. It is cumbersome. I cannot fight the enemy. No, Isaiah 54 tells us there is no weapon that can win the advantage over those who are clothed in God's armor. This is not an armor that is going to weigh you down and be a burden. This is going to be a beautiful armor that is light, that is completely protective, your complete body armor that allow you to stand strong until he comes. Let's pray. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us to do just that in this day where we find ourselves maybe overcome by doubts and fears, maybe even fear of death itself. Lord, that you would grant us a helmet of salvation and that you'd give us the discipline to begin to store your word as we study it, as we think about it, as we read it, as we meditate on it, memorize it, that you would help us, Lord, to be people who wield well the sword of the Spirit, not only defending, but also, Lord, bringing victory in those moments of battle. I pray for your people here that we would be strong in your strength and that you'd find us strong until you come. In Christ's name we pray, amen.